Okay. Uh, Acts chapter 17, 1 to 9. We're moving on. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they seem to have had a fruitful ministry in Philippi. They were called to Macedonia, of which Philippi was one of the big cities. So that's one of the big cities they first went into. Um, they converted in Philippi a woman and her household. And then they converted a jailer and his household. And they drove out a demon from a possessed girl. That's quite exciting. Ministry in those days were different, eh? Yes. Imagine sitting around Paul having coffee after that trip. Hey, we just came out of Philippi and, yeah, the jailer and this, yeah, the prison shook. Well, great success, but also great persecution. A mob was formed against them in Philippi. Um, they were beaten. They received their lashes. They were thrown into prison. And then they were politely asked, please leave the city by the, uh, by the Romans. And they do do that. And I just have a few notes as I was just thinking through that um, again, that lesson. Just a few things came to my mind. The church is built one by one, miracle by miracle, from place to place. You see, the, um, you see Paul and, and them walk into Philippi. There is no church. I think um, obviously throughout the years, the, the, our concept of church has changed. When Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, what did he mean? Well, you know, what did he mean? Um, the, we see what he meant here. The Holy Spirit is at work in Paul. Um, they go into this town. Their first encounter that where they teach somebody is, is a woman, one by one, right? And then it's the jailer, one by one. And miracles are involved, and, and God is involved in the process. That's how the church grows. The church doesn't grow. The church does, God's church doesn't develop through human means. It develops through conversation and relationships and one-on-one -on -one and the work of the Spirit. Not massive projects that cost lots of money. How much money did it cost for Paul to go into Philippi? It cost maybe just his meal. He didn't need anything fancy. We don't need anything fancy. All we need is love and the, and the willingness to communicate with people. That's how the church grows. That's how Jesus grows His church. Right? S secondly, the work of the Spirit disrupts political peace. And I think that's um, hard for us to comprehend because I think if I ask the question tonight, do you think that Christianity produces peace? We would have said yes. Right? We would say that. But Christianity produces inward peace to those who submit to God. But it doesn't produce peace for people who don't submit to God. It opposes their peace. It disrupts. That's what we see here. It's like, oh, we need to get these guys out of town. Because I guarantee you now that Philippi was a, was a more peaceful town before Paul walked in there than after he walked in there. Because before he walked in there, the demons could roam around. The possessed girl could do her thing. And things were just going fine. Now Paul comes in and he brings a contrary teaching to what the people are, are, are used to. And that upsets people. The truth upsets people. Jesus, did He come to bring peace? He Himself said He came to bring a sword. To divide families. That's the truth of Christianity. And, and it's not God bringing division. The truth brings division. Unfortunately. That's a, a thing that was in my mind. And then money and demons often go together. Because you have this, um, you have the demon-possessed girl. You go read the story again. What did the people get upset about? 
money. Because they're losing money now. The demons not um, making their money um, anymore. And often those two go together. Just some thoughts that came to my mind. A few questions. What is a reasonable faith? Because I think sometimes we, we assume that faith is believing without reason. And I don't think that's the case. I think Christianity is a reasonable faith. We can make good arguments as to why Christianity is true. We don't have to just say, just believe it, man. No, we can say, hey, look at the evidence. Look at archaeological. Look at the reliability of the Bible. Okay, so it's a, re a reasonable faith. Do you believe there is any value in debating theological ideas? What is really useful in, in, in debating with people about? When the truth can, yeah, the, the, the truth, sure. We, we, can, we can spend, so what I'm really asking is, we can debate for hours whether we should be keeping the Sabbath or not, or whether um, women should be wearing a covering on their heads or not. Or we could debate for hours with somebody in the world who doesn't believe in Jesus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Which is the most valuable debate to have? That's at the heart of the, the Jesus, right? And so we've got to, we'll see that tonight. You know, what is it, when the text says Paul debated, what did he debate? Did he debate Nat issues or did he debate Jesus, the Messiah? Thirdly, um, why did the Jews so often become jealous of Jesus and the apostles? They don't want him to be true. Power. Oh, absolutely. Power. Yeah. All right. We'll unpack that a little bit. Why does Christianity often bring about disunity? And I've sort of touched on that now already. All right. The apostles had left Philippi. They are now going into uh, Thessalonica. Oh, sorry, forgot one question there. When is it okay to have a bad reputation? <laughs> when is it okay to have a bad reputation? That question might not make sense now, but it will make sense Later on in the lesson. Okay, Mama Karen, you happy? Okay, all right. It's okay sometimes to have a bad reputation, and you'll see what the conditions of those would be. So, the, um, the, the apostles were there in Philippi, and now they've moved along there, and they're going to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. What happens there? We know that there's a book in the Bible, right? Thessalonians. So, we know there's a church there, eventually. There's no church there now. At this point where in the story, we're going to see tonight how the church developed there. And then we can compare it sort of with Philippi. You know, how that church came to be. Um, as Paul later on writes a letter to these uh, churches. Take note, Thessalonica is a huge city. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a wealthy city. And there's, where there's great wealth, it seems like there will be Jews. It seems to be the case. Where there's great wealth, there's Jews. That's maybe why so many people hate the Jews. All right, let's go. Verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Quick question. Was there a Jewish synagogue in Philippi? No. They're just a place of prayer by the river. As was his custom. Right? We know this already. Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days... He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving 
that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now let's look at a few things there. My first thought here was that Paul entered the synagogue as a scroll warrior. And the reason why I called it that is because nowadays we mock people by saying, um, not mock in an ugly way, we call them keyboard warriors. They are waging war on, 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 on social media with the keyboards, debating people, reasoning with people. Paul is doing the same thing, but he's doing it with scrolls. They didn't have books. So he's unpacking his arguments with Scripture. He went in there for three Sabbaths. Dialegumai is what he did. Dialegumai. What does that sound like? Dialogue. Yes. Dialogue. Reason. One guy said, mingle thought with thought. Let's open the text. Let's discuss what's happening here. Sometimes it is translated as argue, um, or it could be as easy as discuss. How did he do this? The text tells us how he did his, what is the translation here? Reason, how he reasoned with them. He did it from what? The scriptures. The original says, out of the scriptures. So he brought his arguments out of the scriptures, right? Why out of the scriptures? Number one, it's the only source of authority. We have to accept that. This is the greatest onslaught against Christianity, is to discredit the authority of the scriptures. Whenever you have that in question, you have problems. The Mormons have problems because they would say to you, yes, the, the, the Bible is Scripture, but you've also got this book, and if, if the Bible contradicts with this book, then there's, there's something wrong with the Bible. You see, every time when, when, when the teachings of demons come in, it's trying to discredit the teachings of the Scriptures. Okay, so Paul goes to the Scriptures because he knows that's the ultimate authority. And this is where the difficulty comes in, is that when we disagree with what the text is actually saying. And, you know, that's a discussion for, an, for another, another night. But secondly, why did he go to the Scriptures? Because these Jews were in the synagogue, and they respected it. Right? So, if you want to have a reasonable discussion with somebody, you've got to find common ground. What, what do we agree on? And the best way to debate with a Muslim is not with the Bible. The best way to reason with a Muslim is with the Quran. So you've got to know the Quran, because he respects the Quran. He doesn't respect the Bible. The best way to deal with uh, Mormons, my brother, is to know the, you know, the pearl of great price. To, and that takes a lot of work. I, I, I get it. But, I mean, that solidifies your, your argument with him. Paul does that here with the Torah. Um, Paul then, the, the, the NIV says he explained and proved. The Greek words there is dia noigo which is the first one, reason, to, it means to open up. He used the scriptures, and he opened up, in a sense, their minds, or opened up the prophecies about Jesus. But he, he, he opened up something that was closed to them. All right? And then the second word is para tetemi, which is proving, which means to set before. So what he did is, he brought the scripture, he opened it up, and he set it before them. That's our job when we're discussing things with people regarding God, is to bring Scripture. Not, not unpack your experience, not bring your experience, or bring your thought, 
or bring your things. No, it's like, what does the text say? And you'll be surprised. The more and the older I get, the more I realize this is the key problem that people have. I had this, this afternoon a discussion with a young man who just got divorced and, um, and he's, he recently says he got baptized and he, he, I, he's, he doesn't understand why his relationship fell apart. And I said, well, I don't know, it's fairly simple for me. God isn't there. Because he explained to me everything. I said, it's very clear God isn't there. Do you even know what the Bible says about marriage? Yeah, John 3.16, he quotes to me. I said, dude, do you know any? So, so he just quoted to me his kindergarten verse that he's remembered his whole life. I'm not being critical at him. Please, I'm not judging him. I'm just saying that people don't know the text. They don't have a clue. They don't understand that this is where the truth is. You've got to go to it. And it's accessible to us. Satan has managed to make people believe you can't read the text. And I, I know there's complicated sections of the scripture, but man, there's some serious straight things in there. Um, I've met some people in my life that are not intellectual giants. They don't have the highest IQ. They struggle to speak. I, 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 I've got somebody in my mind right now who I love dearly, who is not the sharpest tool in the shed, but he can read the Bible. Don't tell me you can't read it. Of course you can. You don't want to. All right, so with that said, I can go on all night. Okay. Now, question is, so, so, so he brings the scripture, he reasons about it, he, he brings it, he lays it open, and he puts it in front of them. What is the topic? The topic is Jesus, the Messiah, risen from the dead. In actual fact, I would argue tonight, I don't think Paul spent much time arguing other things at the same level or to the same extent. The question was about Jesus Christ. Here's a scripture for you. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, and he says to him, But avoid foolish controversies, and genealogies, and arguments, and quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and useless. There's a lot of stuff we can talk about that's unprofitable and useless. Meaningless. Certain things are deep, like eschatology. I mean, you know, there's things that can be studied. But at the end of the day, you've got to ask the question, how relevant is this to my daily life? Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And what Paul is talking about here, sometimes in the church, in Christianity, I've seen it, and I'm talking from an experienced position. I've met a lot of people who want to discuss a lot of stuff. Always want to argue about this, about that. That's the context of this. When you meet a person that constantly wants to debate and argue about minor gnat issues, you have a divisive person. Because he's lost track of what really matters. The things that are related to Jesus Christ. Any thoughts? Everybody okay? All right. Let's go to verse 4. How do the people respond to this dialogue that Paul has. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So there's quite a package. It's a bigger city, and so it is, it is easier to convert larger crowds of people. The fishing is going a little bit better. In the smaller uh, Philippi, it's basically just two people that were converted in their household. Yeah, 
slam bang. There you have Jews, you got some uh, proselytes, some Greek proselytes, and some, some women. Um, it's important to note here, Paul used reason and evidence to state his case. His argumentation was not about things that didn't matter, but it was about Jesus. The idea that the Messiah had to die was strange because the Jews, imagine you in Thessalonica, they didn't have a biblical understanding of the topic. Let me explain this. Let's go back to, to the verses. Why is it such a big deal that Paul has to prove Jesus is the Messiah? Can you imagine Paul comes into Thessalonica and he speaks to this bunch of Jews and he says, guys, the Messiah has come. And these Jews are like, wow, I don't know if I believe you. Okay, tell us a bit more about him. Man, you know, he was 30 years old, he was baptized by John, and he, he started this great ministry, and, and, and then he was, and then he was, you know, under Pilate, he was, he was crucified. And, and then he was buried, and he, he had nothing. And then he was raised from the dead, and we saw him. Can you imagine? Now, picture, put yourself in a, in a, a scholar of the Torah. You're a scholar of the Torah. And this is one of the reasons why they were so, uh, so jealous and angry with the, with the apostles. is because they've been studying the Scriptures their whole lives. Then this guy comes in here. He's poor. He's in shabs. And he comes and tells us that the Messiah had already come. We missed him. He was here. What? Tell us about him. He died on a cross. Whoa, the Torah says, Cursed is a man that hangs on a cross. Well, he's, he's prince of peace. He's not a prince. You're telling me that the Messiah was some peasant that died on a cross somewhere. That doesn't line up. The Jews believed that he would be ruler. And they understood that to be a king on earth. They had a misunderstanding of the scripture. So what Paul was trying to reveal to them from the scriptures is that the Messiah actually had to suffer. He's not this guy that doesn't suffer, that rules with swords and is a mighty warrior that never gets hurt. No, he had to suffer and he had to be raised from the dead. That's actually what the scripture says. Do you understand that this, how, why this debate was so intense? That Paul had to reveal this to them, lay it open, put it in front of them so that they could understand it. Guys, the story of the Messiah on the cross, Jesus on the cross, it's actually a weak story. I listened this week. There's a very aggressive guy. His name is Muhammad Ijab. He is the most prominent um, Islamist that lives in the UK. And he, he is just aggressive. Every time he comes on TV, he defends the Gaza stories and Islam and, and what, 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 what. You know, in one interview, he made it very clear. He said, he was asked why Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Which, by the way, it is. But he would never acknowledge why it is. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world because of birth rate. They have lots of children. Lots and lots of children. It's not the fastest religion in the world because people are converting to it. It's also, it doesn't lose too many members because family members are driven with fear. They don't want to leave it. Because then they'll be cut off and in certain countries they'll be killed. So you don't want to leave it. And you keep on producing children, and so people, it, it increases that way. But he was on that discussion to explain why he believes men are coming to Islam, which is true. There are certain men that's coming to Islam. There, there is a conversion rate among men. And he explains it this way. He says, 
Because Muhammad, the founder of the Islamic religion, was a warrior. And men want to be warriors. And they want to be successful. And they want to move forward. And they want to be leading. And they want to be powerful. And they want to be adventurous. And so Islam is attractive. It's a religion of warfare and winning and lordship and power and aggression. And that attracts certain men. It, it, it attracts testosterone junkies. And then he explains in this whole thing, he says, he sort of mocks Christianity. He says, look at Christianity. There's a guy hanging dead on a cross. It's a weak religion. Now put yourself in Thessalonica as a Jew. You want the Jews to take over the world. That's what the, the scriptures prophesied. And now this guy walks into town and he tells the Messiah was already here. Yeah? He's weak, man. He hangs on a cross. Doesn't make sense, does it? By the way, I think the man hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, submitting to death, making himself nothing, becoming a servant, makes him far more powerful than a man who cuts off other people's legs and claims to be a warlord. Who's the weak one? Up to this point, it seems like the trip to Thessalonica is pretty powerful, wouldn't you say? It's pretty, pretty easy. It's not like in Philippi. Crowds are converted, not just families. But Paul wrote a letter to the, to the Thessalonians sometime later to the disciples in Thessalonica. And, and he said the, to, the, to them this about that experience with them. He says to them, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. True. There was results. We already see it. Okay. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. That's what we covered last week and the week before. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. What was the strong opposition? Obviously, there was some type of strong opposition. What was it? And if you read the verses further, that's going to be revealed to us. And I want to just point out to you one thing. I want you to picture the apostles are in Thessalonica. At this point in the story, we don't see the opposition yet. But it seems like they are staying at somebody's house. They, they found the Airbnb. But also this time... Paul makes it very clear in the verses following this, what we just read, and further on in chapter 2, that Paul says, when we were with you, we didn't want to be a burden to you, and so we work night and day to provide for our own cares and needs, so we're not a burden to the church. So what, what do we see? The disciples, the apostles, they were working to cover their own needs in Thessalonica. And now they were going to fa face the opposition. As you know, it always is. There's somebody that hates what we say. Let's read. Verse 5, but others, so some listened and followed, but other Jews were jealous. There you have it. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. <laughs> what does that look like? Hey guys, let's go, let's go, let's go look who's got funny hairstyles. Let's look at the guys that look like Vikings. Huh? Let's go get some bad guys in the marketplace. We need some criminals. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. There we go again. I think Paul is like, he hears the noises. Ah, here we go again. Smells like Philippi, man. We're back in Lystra. We're back in Derby and Iconium. I thought it was a great journey here so far. Oh, here we go. They rushed to Jason's house and searched in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. I was going to really mock Jason tonight. I'm upset that he's not here. Because I was going to say to him, you never allow preaching to your house, bro. That's what happens. Don't let him sleep over. 
You can come visit for a sandwich, but don't let him stay longer. The mobs are going to come to your house and drag out the preachers. What I find interesting about this is I reflected back to what happened in Philippi. In Philippi, they were dragged into the marketplace. Same thing. Why were they dragged into the marketplace in Philippi? Because Paul had driven the demon out of the slave girl, and the owners were upset. So the owners rushed, same word, dragged them to the marketplace, where all the um, specific types of people were. And the scholars tell me that there were two types of people in the marketplace. Those who were idle, didn't want to do anything. Number two, those who didn't have jobs. And so it's the prime place to go and get some people that are not busy. It's rent a crowd. That's what it is. Rent a mob. The Jews were jealous. The Greek word means that they were burning with zeal to do the same thing essentially as what the slave owners had done. The friends of demons did in Philippi. Go rent a mob in the marketplace. So it seems like if we draw the parallel between the two towns, demons work through money, but they also work through religion, tradition and self-righteousness. Because it's basically the same thing. The demon owners or the slave owners are doing the same thing as the religious elite in Thessalonica. Doing the same thing. Same strategy. Get a mob together. Go to the marketplace. Get the bad guys. Religious leaders can be influenced by the works of darkness and demons. A big question is why are they so jealous and why are they burning with zeal? And you guys have given some answers. Two reasons in my opinion. Number one, they were losing credibility with the people, power. Oh, we had a, like we had a church here of 300, 100 have left. If they with Paul and Silas, those peasants. I would be annoyed as well. Secondly, they were too prideful to accept that their understanding of Scripture could be wrong. And that is hard, ladies and gentlemen. This is really, really hard. How do you come to terms with being wrong about something for 40 years? For 40 years, you've stood in the synagogue and you've told the people, the Messiah is going to be powerful. He's not going to die on a cross. You see, because the teachers, they are to accept, oh my goodness, we've been wrong about our interpretation of Scripture. The moment we accept that, it's just, too, it's just too much pride in the way. I cannot acknowledge that I've been wrong. I cannot. We must reject these guys and push them out. Instead of accepting your own error and humility, you attack the person that's bringing the truth. That's hard. And I pray, I pray that God will give me a heart of humility, and we should all pray for that. You know, I'm, I'm still young. I've been preaching for about 20 years, but... Imagine 20 years from now, I come to realize that some of the things that I hold so, so dearly on what I thought was true is not. Will I have the humility to accept that I'm wrong? Verse 6 says, but when they did not find them, so they go to Jason's house and the apostles are not there. They dragged Jason. I was going to mock Jason a bit there. And some other believers before the city officials shouting. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Oh, these cats had a reputation already. 
And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, this is an aggressive mob. There is dragging and there is shouting. The original says that they assaulted Jason's house. This mob, ladies and gentlemen, is not from God. But it's being led. It's being initiated by God's people. But it's not from God. Aggressive mobs never come from God. By the way, Jason means one who will heal. Jason was either a cousin of Paul or he was a new convert in the city, but obviously he had an Airbnb. If you look at the behavior of these guys, you see this. If we cannot win the argument, this is the jealous Jews. If we can't win the argument, then we use aggression and intimidation and we turn the government on you. That's the tactic. We'll use a physical source of power to dominate you. Because we can't dominate you in reason. We can't dominate you in scripture. We'll use the government to dominate you. Watch out. That's coming for us as well. as God's people. What I found powerful is how the apostles have this reputation. The text says they turned the whole world upside down. I think that's a powerful, cool reputation. That's incredible. I love that. That is what the truth does. It turns the world upside down. Because the world is ruled by the prince of darkness. And he set up structures in different ways. And when you come in with a sword, you upset the apple cart. What do you call it? What does that mean, by the way? Like you tip an apple cart? I don't know. You guys need to teach me this stuff. So the truth will cause uproar and discomfort. It will. The truth will cause uproar and discomfort. The sooner we learn... To allow the truth to create discomfort in us, the better. Because the truth will set you free. But the world doesn't see that. The darkness doesn't see that. All right. Interesting. Look at their accusation. What's the accusation? Hey, these guys are saying that there's another king. One called Jesus. They disagree with what Paul says about scripture. But now they turn it suddenly into a political stunt. They don't have grounds to disagree with Paul face to face. So now they go find something else to take him on. Um, some of the historians say that the, um, the Roman people and after, after them um, the emperors would not permit the name of any other king to be mentioned in any of the vanquished provinces except by their permission. So that was what was going on here. You were not allowed to say that there exists another king in any of the towns where the Romans ruled. And so they, and these, you know, you know, who do you think was running the show here? You've got some serious lawyers here. That's what lawyers can do, man. They can twist the thing. They really can. I doubt that the apostles were saying Jesus is king of any place in this world. Maybe if they spoke about king, they maybe spoke about that uh, Pilate wrote king of the Jews on the cross, maybe. Um, if you want to find a legal reason to expel Christianity, you will find something. You will find something. Especially if you have a wicked lawyer. All right, let's close off. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason, 
and the others post bond and let them go. Turmoil? Why, why were they in turmoil? Probably because they're like thinking, oh, yuck, we've, been, we've got some problems in this town. This is a bigger issue than what, we, than what we thought. We need to get rid of these guys. We don't want you know, the, the emperor to find out what's going on here. We, we need to get rid of these guys. And so I read up what the guys said here about post-bond. I thought maybe it's like bail, but that's apparently not what it is. It's just they made a deal with the rulers of the city to do what's necessary so that peace can be restored. It's like they made a deal with Jason and said, dude, you know, you know what, what can you do? Can you let these guys go? Can you convince them to rather leave the city so we can have peace? And that is probably why the apostles left after this, and we'll climb into that next week. But once again, was Satan on time? He was late again. Paul had already converted a bunch of women, Greeks, Jews. He'd already deposited seeds for three weeks. Wake up, Satan. You're always going to be last. Like, ah, they're out. Yes. No, the gospel is in. The spirit is here. And there the apostles go. 